Well, this part of Texas is one of the fastest growing areas of our country, as we all know. And if you have any question about that, just get out on Highway 380 <laughs> anytime, day or night. It is amazing. Um, I drove to Tyler and back yesterday to give my grandson a kiss. And uh, on the way back, I was thinking, you know, Saturday, you know, 380 should be a lot lighter. <laughs> so naive. But our infrastructure can't keep up with the growth. And I'm not talking about the growth of uh, people coming over our southern border. I'm talking about people coming over our northern border in Texas and our western border from Texas. I've lived in this area almost 40 years now, and I can remember Highway 380 as a two-lane road where you never saw anything but a few cows. And now it's just solid concrete. It's amazing. It's become so crowded, and unfortunately, it's also become so dangerous. Not only can the infrastructure not keep up with all the cars, but traffic lights, and if you've been there lately, I'm sure you have, there's tons of construction with an effort to try to help the problem. But uh, in the meantime, it sort of creates extra problems uh, that you can't see very well as you're trying to turn and almost, um, we're on the road all the time because we live in Aubrey, and so that's our main way to get here. And uh, I, we see accidents like every week. And not long ago, I, it was a real long slowdown, and I was looking on my phone. There's no way to, to go around it, so you just have to wait, wait it out. And finally got up to the scene of what was an accident. And I've never seen this before. It was a, I saw a man laying on the ground with a sheet over him and his hands and his feet sticking out of the sheet, so I know it was a man, and I knew it was a dead man. And that moment was a real pivot in my day, because driving up to that, I was just inconvenienced. But at leaving that site, I was very grateful. Obviously not for this poor man who was just headed home. Little did he know he was headed home, wherever home is for him. But it gave me an overwhelming sense of gratitude and of the frailty of life. Because none of us knows when our last breath is. Um, many of us um, have had friends and family that have lived to a ripe old age. Others have seen, unfortunately, people die in their prime, even children. Our world is a place of contrast. We've got natural beauty that is all that God desired us to appreciate. Kathy and I were talking about this at one sunset uh, not too long ago. We saw this beautiful sunset, as Texas often gives us. And we were just talking about the fact that not only is it beautiful, but we are designed by God to appreciate that beauty. Uh, I was reading in Genesis uh, where it talks about the, uh, the trees that God made for food and for beauty. That's in there. If you, if you read the creation account, that God designed things simply to be beautiful and designed us to appreciate those things. But we also have the other side of things. We have the bad parts of this world. Not only do we have natural beauty like sunsets and even the love that we share between us, but we also have hard things like a global pandemic, um, like fatal accidents you see on the road. The news that we see is just bad news because that's what gets our attention. 
News is not news if they tell us, you know what, everything went well today. It's got to be something bad. And we can get real cynical about it all, or we can see it for what it is. That is that we live in a beautiful world that is a broken world, and and it's not a contradiction, but it is a contrast. And it's a tension with the beauty and the brokenness that God's Word clearly addresses as to why it's beautiful, why it's broken, and how a God, a good God, is going to bring about a resolution to this tension that we feel, not only in the world we see, but in our own hearts. Because in our own hearts, we're that way. We love God, and yet we disobey God. We say we love people, and yet we curse people. We sacrifice for others, and yet at the same time, we're selfish with others. There is a tension, even in our own lives, and the grace of God offers us the mindset that we need to make sense of it all. Well, let's turn to the book of Titus, and the theme of this book indeed is the grace of God. I would say, as far as on a practical level, Titus is even more about the grace of God than any other New Testament book that I know. Galatians is great, Romans is definitely great, but Titus isn't so theological as it is practical. It gives us doctrine, not simply to describe our salvation, but to give the so what to our salvation, to give how grace actually impacts us. That's one of the things I love about the book of Titus, is that it gives us principles which are so practical. You may remember when we started uh, two, three weeks ago in chapter one, we talked about the leaders and how the character of leaders in the church is to be uh, you know, it's, it's to be basically on the level of Christ. It's a, it's a tough challenge and a tough goal, which uh, none of us as leaders or even as people ever arrive at, but it's the goal. It's the action that we are to take. And Paul tells uh, Titus, I left you on the island of Crete for this purpose to appoint elders. And then he, he says, here's what an elder needs to look like. And then we get into chapter 2, And Paul narrows it a little bit, or maybe I should say broadens it a little bit from the leaders of the church to the people of the church. And he talks about older men, older women, younger women, young men, and then Titus himself, as we saw last week. There is this sense of responsibility to the doctrine of the grace of God. And there's one more group that we haven't looked at yet that we'll look at here, starting in verse 9 that he adds to the list, and then we're going to put the big so what onto it, as Paul does. Verse 9, Paul writes, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, when we hear a word in the Bible, we immediately associate that word with something we know. Um, This is how language works. I say a word, and because we have a mutual understanding of that word, communication is effective to understanding. But sometimes we say a word, and unless we're aware of the context of that word, we're not going to connect. 
And this often happens when I'm talking to my wife, it seems. <laughs> she means one thing, and I hear something else, and vice versa. And so it takes this, this time of, uh, of interpreting one another to bring it about. Doesn't matter how long you're married, this is the way it works. But anyway, let's don't get off into that. Let's get back into this. But when we hear the word bond slave, or slave, which is what the word is, referring to slaves. So we've got um, this list, we've got the older men and women, the younger men and women, and then Paul says, urge slaves, or bond slaves, be subject to their own masters. We hear the word slave, and we typically think of what we associate with slavery. That's here in the United States prior to the Civil War. This was a terrible institution, and it was abusive, it was brutal, it was inhumane, and it definitely uh, denigrated what a person is, a person actually made in the image of God. Now, there was a certain amount of that in Paul's time, and I'm not here in any way to try to elevate slavery, but I'm here to give maybe context to what a slave was in Paul's day. When we read this, we immediately associate it with what we're familiar with. Don't think of that. Think of slavery in the Roman Empire was different. Uh, roughly half of all people in the Roman Empire during the first century were slaves, about 60 million people. A slave was, in most respects, equal in status to a free man or woman. Now, that sounds really antithetical to what we understand as slavery. But in most respects, they were equal in status. They, uh, in fact, their conditions often were better than a free person. Slaves could have a family. They had legal rights. They could earn their freedom. And incidentally, the only other time the Apostle Paul uses this word bond slave in the book of Titus is in reference to himself. In uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to himself. Paul, a bond servant of God. The exact same word. So Paul is referring to himself as one who is um, basically under the authority of God. And, of course, a slave most certainly was that. Now, how do we apply this then? I mean, if we aren't slaves today, and certainly not slaves in the first century, or even like it was certainly in America, how do we apply it? Well, when we come across something like this, we want to not make the text walk on all fours because obviously we, aren't, we can't directly relate to slavery as an application. But we can relate to the principles of it with regard to working under the authority of someone. And that we can all relate to, whether it's a job we've had or a volunteer position that we do currently have. The principles generally can work with that same application. Um, so think about work, for instance. I know that many of you no longer work. Some of us still do. But uh, regardless, we all are in some form of uh, volunteering or activity outside of our home, uh, I would guess. But I, I was uh, tickled to read this account in the magazine called Your Company. They asked visitors to their website to explain why some job candidates they encountered seemed so unqualified. You're like this. One manager interviewed a lady in her office, and this lady dozed off and started snoring in the interview. 
Don't laugh too loud. This class does that from time to time. <laughs> this, this was labeled uh, lack of enthusiasm. There was another man applying for a clerical job was told to just relax before his typing test. So he flexed his fingers and took his shirt off. <laughs> I mean, I can really type if I don't have on my shirt. Um, this was called poor pre presentation skills, definitely. There was a warehouse applicant who said he was proud of his self-restraint because he only stole from his grandmother's friends and not from her. <laughs> there was a candidate for an IBM job was asked if he had any questions, and the candidate said, yes, is the office close enough to my house so I can go home three times a day and water pick my teeth? <laughs> By the way, do you ever water pick your teeth? I am amazed at what falls out. Are you? It's like you, you can get a second meal out of the deal. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. I'm just saying whoever invented the water pick did a good job. But I've read about that um, in your job, it depends, 30% depend on your skill and 70% depend on your ability to get along with people. And what's so ironic is most of the time when we, we hire someone, it's based off of a resume that's all about skill. And hopefully we'll do our due diligence and call their references and hopefully the references will be honest. But generally when we think about the qualifications necessary, we think about education and experience but not about character. I love this story of this uh, quote by Tom Landry. When Landry was coached for the Cowboys, they asked him about hiring. And he said this, he said, when we draft men for our team, we look for five things, and the first is character. And he said, well, what if you find a terrific athlete who lacks character? Landry said, that's easy, we don't draft him. Where did those days go? <laughs> but how interesting. Landry gets, gets it right, got it right. And what we read here in verses 9 and 10 are all about character. Think about this in your context. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. You know what it means to pilfer? It means you're taking something of the companies that you're not supposed to, whether it's money, whether it's paper clips or whatever it is, and using it for your own benefit. You're abusing your privilege. Paul says we don't do that. And it's interesting that, we, that bosses ought to uh, have this same standard of themselves, not just, uh, not just employees. So this is, we're told this, that a a servant or a slave, or from our perspective, an employee or a volunteer, we're working for the benefit of someone else under their authority. We're to be this way, and notice why we're to be this way. Verse 10 told us, but look at it again. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, here's the purpose, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So that. There's the purpose. And we've seen that a number of times. Look back at verse 4. Let's just review the so that's, the recent so that's here. 
The older women are to, are to train the younger women, which we read in verse 4, and as a result of their character in verse 3, verse 4, so that they may train the young women. The purpose of the character of the older women is so that they have credibility to train the younger women. And the younger women are to have their character and their actions into verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Then verse 8, Paul told Titus to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. And then slaves, verse 10, are to show all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God. There is a greater purpose, Paul says, than simply being good. But we live lives like this so that God is honored, so that the doctrine of our God is honored. Interesting, he says doctrine. He says doctrine, and this sort of forms a bookend to what he said at the beginning of the chapter. In verse 10, he says, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God. And if you look back at verse 1, Paul tells Titus, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And remember, he, he launches into character qualities, that, that character is related to sound doctrine. And Paul makes that same connection here in verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Doctrine is not just a doctrinal statement of words. It is a life that lives it, a life that lives it. The word adorn here in verse 10, to adorn the doctrine, is used uh, only other times in the New Testament with refer to, for example, uh, beautiful stones that adorn the temple, or the beauty of heaven, or the attitude of a godly wife. We put, we adorn things. Think about the ornaments that we put on Christmas trees. What, what would a Christmas tree look like? Just bare tree. Like, well, Mary's sort of Christmas. You know, you put stuff on it. You adorn that tree, and it becomes beautiful. In fact, what makes our trees unique are the adornments. We don't have cookie-cutter Christmas trees. Everyone's tree is different because everyone's tree represents them. Our behavior is like an ornament on the Bible. Our behavior adorns the doctrine of God. Listen to what Peter said. Listen to Peter's words. He wrote this, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our jobs are not just an opportunity to serve humanity's needs. Our jobs are not just an opportunity to make money. Our jobs are a mission field. We do what we do to adorn the doctrine of God. So, finally, thank you, Paul. It's taken two and a half chapters now of character qualities to finally get to the so what. How do we do this? Why do we do this? We, we could sum up most messages on Sunday in two words. What are those two words? Well, I'm glad we're talking about it again. 
Be good. Be good. Just be good. That's all you got to do. Just be good. But why? Do you ever wonder why? Why be good? Paul's about to tell us. He has told them in chapter 1, leaders, be good. He said in chapter 2, older women, younger women, older men, younger, younger men, slaves, be good. Why be good? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And the word there for men is, doesn't mean males. It means uh, what men used to mean. It means mankind. All people, bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared. And notice that first word in verse 11, for. If you don't have a word like that at the beginning of verse 11, the word for or the word because, somehow to make a connection between all these commands to be good because the grace of God has appeared. That's why. That's why we live good lives, because God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared. What does grace mean? Um, I looked it up in Webster's, and he defines it several ways, uh, as beauty or a charm of form, I guess, like graceful, an attractive quality, a temporary exemption of payment, like a grace period, a prayer before meal, the title of respect to someone, your grace, And then all the way down, the 11th and final definition, in theology, A, the unmerited love and favor of God toward people, and B, the divine influence acting on man to make him pure and morally strong, and C, the condition of a person thus influenced. The very last definition is the definition we're looking for here. That God's grace, the unmerited love, the unearned love of God given to us is our motivation to live a godly life. The grace of God has appeared. That word, uh, words, has appeared, literally means that the grace of God has illuminated. Think about a, uh, a sunrise where it's dark and you just start to see the sun peek over and it just floods the earth with light. That's the grace of God. That first moment, the grace of God has illuminated, has appeared. You could translate it, the saving grace of God has appeared to all people. Why? Because all people need it. All people need it. I was so sad to read this uh, account. You remember back when O.J. Simpson and his white Bronco was you know, running away? And, of course, all the trials and the, just the media frenzy that that was. Well, in the aftermath of it, Simpson was trying to find the money to help pay the judgment against him from his wrongful death suit. And so he started hawking things, and he sold his Heisman Trophy. It was auctioned off for $230,000. Some other items were sold, a life-size metal statue of Simpson. There was a weighted Glass University of Southern California trophy, another trophy given by the ABC Wild World World of Sports, 
Altogether, the auction earned a whopping $382,000 and change. That is a lot of money. The problem is Simpson owed $33 million. <laughs> I just thought, ah. I mean, $382,000 sounds like a lot, but once you consider the size of the debt, it's not much at all. It's just a, a drop in the bucket. Think about this. If you consider the size of your debt before God, if you could auction off our lives, your life, my life, we could auction off, we'd have a pretty nice pile of good deeds, wouldn't we? But what can good deeds do to get rid of your sin? And this is the problem with every other religion except the Bible, except Christianity. What are you going to do with your sin? There's no solution. You can have a pile of good works a mile high, but what are you going to do with your sin? Because if God is holy and there's sin in your life, what are you going to do about that? Good works don't get rid of it. They can't even hide it when it comes to Judgment Day. The solution is to get rid of the sin. And the only way that can be done is through a sacrifice on our behalf. And of course, that's exactly what God did in His love. He became the sacrifice that we couldn't do. He sent His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we deserve. So now when we stand before God, we don't say, Lord, look at my pile of good deeds. We instead, we instead say thank you for the good deed of Jesus on the cross that took away all of my sins. Here's a joke, and I say it's a joke, lest some of you think I've gone heretical as I start. But Bob dies and goes to heaven, standing there in front of Peter. Peter says, all right, Bob, it takes 100 points to get into heaven. And uh, so we're going to run down the list of stuff you've done. So let's see what you've done. So Bob goes, no, no problem. I've been a faithful husband and father for decades to my family. Peter says, that's amazing, Bob. That's worth two points. <laughs> two points. Two points. What else you got? Bob goes, wow. I mean, I went to church every week, served, gave money. Fantastic, Bob. That's worth one point. I mean, he's pulled out his aces, and he's only got three points so far. And he begins to be desperate, and he thinks about this, he thinks about that, and finally he tells Peter, he says, there's no way I'm getting into heaven except by the grace of God. And Peter goes, that's worth 100 points. <laughs> by the way, that's not how it works. It's not a point system. But it is how it works in the sense of the grace of God is our only hope. And there's no loophole. There's only one way to make it work. Uh, remember W.C. Fields? Probably a little before some of your time. Maybe many of you remember. You don't have to admit it. But uh, I've seen, you know, pictures. W.C. Field. And I read about an account of this comedian of yesteryear. A friend of his, a close friend of his, found him in his dressing room reading the Bible secretly. And if you know anything about W.C. Fields, you know he was not, you know, very much of a religious person. And they said, W.C., what in the world are you doing reading your Bible, reading the Bible? And he said, well, I'm just looking for loopholes. <laughs> Maybe you remember him now. There's no loopholes. There's no loopholes. 
we will be called to account before God for our sin unless we place our faith in Jesus. There's no exception. The grace of God has appeared because everybody needs it. So here's principle number one that we pull from our text today. There's only a couple that we'll walk away with, and this one's a big one. God's saving grace is freely available to all. God's saving grace is freely available to all. And we get that right from the text, that we're told that uh, in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, to all people. It is freely available to everybody. And if you think about it, Jesus had no obligation to die for our sins. I'll make it more personal. Jesus had no obligation to die for your sin. He only had an obligation to judge it. As God, that's his only obligation, to judge it. But he went beyond that, and he realized that in our helpless state, our only chance was his grace, our only hope, I should say. And so he gave himself to meet his own demand. He died in our place. That's the only way it works. There was a Spanish father who had a bitter disagreement with his son in Madrid. Son ran away. The father, after some weeks, was very remorseful of the, the falling out, and he puts, puts out an ad in the paper in Madrid in hopes that his son, Paco, will meet him. And he puts the ad out, and it was very short and simple, but it said this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña tomorrow, or noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. What the father didn't count on is that Paco was a very common name in Spain. <laughs> and he showed up at the hotel on Tuesday to find 800 young men named Paco, hoping to make amends with their dads. You see, the need we have is universal. We know that we're estranged from God. And the world and every other religion tells us that the way to get back to God is to live a good life. Well, living a good life is great, but what are you going to do with your sin? Lewis Smedes wrote this in his book called Shame and Grace. He said, quote, Guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I felt most was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins that I was guilty of. What I needed more than a pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let go of me, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. We all have that need that Paco had to have reconciliation. We all have the need that Smeeds expresses to be accepted. God's saving grace is freely available to you and to me. It just, we just have to receive it. This amazing grace, as we call it, we see it in the life of Christ, not only in his death, but also in his teaching, his stories. His stories were wonderful. And I loved what Don shared this morning about the prodigal son and uh, I will arise and go to Jesus. Such a beautiful song and a beautiful message. But Jesus' stories had this same theme. You see stories of debtors that are being forgiven of their debt freely of a prodigal son who freely is forgiven, of the good Samaritan who freely gives help to an enemy. 
you see a shepherd going after, leaving 99 sheep, going after the one that's lost. And one of the best parables is where a farmer hires some guys to work at the end of the day, and he pays them as much as the people that worked all day long. And of course, of course, those hired at the beginning of the day say, hey, we've worked all day long and they got just as much money. And Jesus' parable makes no sense until we realize we're not the ones that were hired last. We, we, were, the ones that were, we were not the ones that were hired first. We were the ones that were hired last. We did not get a wage that we earned from a day of living. We got a gift, basically, at the very end of the day. We are the one that the shepherd left the 99 to find. We are the enemy that the Good Samaritan fixed up. We're the prodigal that had nothing to commend ourselves to God. God's grace. You and I are offered salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ. Grace brings us salvation. Great. But what about today? Grace helps us for eternity. Great. But what about Tuesday? Look at verse 12. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's grace, we're told, has appeared. Uh, Those of you who love language and who also have the New American Standard in your lap. I I can't speak for the other translations, but at least this one has a main verb. The grace of God has appeared. And then there are participles. Those are those ing words that come after that that give a further explanation of what the main verb is doing. So God's grace has appeared, and here's the results of it. Bringing salvation, verse 12, instructing us to deny Uh, ungodliness, and then verse 13, looking for the blessed hope. Bringing, instructing, and looking. Now we'll get into looking here in just a minute, but look at the instructing of verse 12. Instructing. It's a word from which we get words that uh, we're familiar with, with regard to uh, pediatrics and pedagogy. It's uh, used of training children. This is what the original word refers to, of training children. And it means to continually provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits. That God's grace is instructing us. Notice it doesn't say that God's grace instructs us. It's instructing. It's ongoing. The the grace of God is not just a one-and-done thing in our lives, but it has daily impact in our lives in that God's grace has given us salvation, and in the context of salvation, it instructs us to live godly lives. In other words, God's grace is that, that security that allows us to keep learning even after we blow it. So here's the second principle. The first one was God's saving grace is freely available to all. The second one is God's saving grace is our motivation for godly living. It's our motivation for godly living. We don't obey God in order to get his favor. We obey him because we already have it through through Jesus. You may remember, uh, well, by say you may remember, I don't mean you remember personally, but you may remember of hearing about back in 1937 
when the Golden Gate Bridge was built, 23 men fell to their death from working on the bridge. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to San Francisco and been over the Golden Gate Bridge and looked down, but how would you like to be like threading a bolt while you're looking down thinking if just one wrong move and I die? Well, 23 men fell to their death working on the bridge. And then some person has, finally has the bright idea, why don't we put a net under these guys so that, you know, if they fall, they don't die. So they did. The net cost $100,000. It was the largest net that had ever been made at that time in the history of the world. And they stretched it underneath the full length of where the workers were working. And as they started to work again, 10 men fell. 10 men were saved. The net caught them. And believe it or not, the work went 25% faster. Because it's like, I can do whatever I want. If I fall, it's just going to be a fun trip. <laughs> the fear of death was gone. And it made them more productive. Now, take that into your spiritual life because that is exactly what Paul is teaching. The grace of God is the safety net underneath us. That you're not working in your Christian life thinking, man, if I make one wrong move, I am plummeting to hell. Paul says, no, the grace of God has brought salvation. And grace instructs us to deny ungodliness. So that if we blow it, and in the sense, if you think of us stumbling or falling, the grace of God catches us and basically says, all right, get back up there and try it again. We don't plummet. God doesn't say, look, I'm done with you as soon as you blow it. Instead, he says, my child, I want to instruct you. The grace of God teaches us. What a beautiful illustration. And this works not only with, uh, with uh, God, but it also works in our relationships with each other. And you and I have all known people that if, you know, if you offend them in, in one little way or once, they're like done with you. And, you know, in some sense, it's probably a good thing because those people are very toxic and difficult to be around. But when we think about our relationship and application to other people, we need to be gracious to them. We need to give them freedom to fail. Think about how we did that with our kids right after we spanked them. <laughs> but even still, they understood they were in the context of grace. If you had a healthy home, they knew that. They knew that you were instructing them. And this is probably why Paul uses this word of training children, because there, are, there is a context of grace. It's everything you do, whether you do well, whether you do poorly, I love you, I accept you, you are always going to be my child. And God's that way with us, but we need to be that way with other people. The grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God teaches us. Now, we can take advantage of that. We can run off the Golden Gate Bridge and do a swan dive. Woo, let's do it, and head right into that net. But that's not what the net's for. It's not to catch our foolishness. It's not to catch our willful sin. It does. But its intent is to instruct us to live godly. The grace of God is not there so we can just sin flagrantly. The grace of God is there so that when we sin, whether we've done it on purpose or not, that we're forgiven and we're trained to get back up and keep going. It's not a license to sin. That's the wrong application of grace. 
I remember years ago when our daughters were small and precious, we were walking in the mall. And Golden Triangle Mall in Denton, right at the crossroads, used to have this candy store. And I mean, it was, they rigged it for parents to just lose, you know, because if you walked in the mall at all, you walked by that crossroads and there was this magnificent candy store. And often when we'd go, our daughters would be like, oh, please, please, can we have candy? Can you have some candy? And often, you know, I just said, look, we go to the mall, you know, you can pick up one or two pieces or something, but we often said yes. But this particular time, I don't know why it was, maybe I was feeling tightwadish, but I told our kids, I told our daughters, we're going to the mall and we're not getting any candy. So we got there and we got to the crossroads and Sarah, our older daughter, is looking around and she was like six years old at the time. She's looking around and she sees the candy store and she immediately takes her hand and goes, ah, and puts it over her eyes. She says, I can't look or I'll want some. (laughs) And I thought, whoa, I wish I had that attitude in my relationship with sin. So true. (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) If it makes you feel good, yes, they got candy. If it makes you feel good, yes, they got candy. Um, So what in the world were we talking about? Okay, so look at verse 12 again. Look at this. God's grace has appeared. That's the main verb. That's the wonderful news. It has flooded our lives. And it teaches us both negatively and positively. First of all, negatively, it teaches, it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's what the grace of God does. It teaches us, like kids, with the safety net underneath us, to deny uh, uh, worldliness and these ungodly desires. And why does it teach us to do that? Because we desire them. Because like my daughter with the candy, we want it. And if we don't deny it, deny ourselves, we will chase after it. The grace of God instructs us negatively to deny ungodliness. But then positively, he goes, and at the same time, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And notice the word and there. It instructs us to deny and to live sensibly. Both are happening all day long at the same time in our lives. We're constantly saying no to the world. We're constantly saying yes to God. And the reason that we do that is because of the grace of God in our lives. That God's grace has given us salvation. Therefore, we say no to those things that aren't right. We say yes to those things that are right. Then, Paul says uh, we're to live this way in the present age, verse 12. The present age implies that there is a future age, and we see that in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Look at that verse. Of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you have in your margin or maybe even have a different translation that changes it and says, um, 
uh, or the great God and our Savior. But it really should be translated this way, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And that is because there was a certain man back in the 1700s, late 1700s, Unitarianism was becoming a very big thing back, uh, if you're familiar with the way our, uh, our country got started, we had deists and we had very popularly also at the end of the 1700s, Unitarians. That is, there's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just got God, that, there's, that Jesus is not God in the flesh. And a man named Granville Sharp discovered a rule of Greek grammar and this particular verse is the shining example of this rule of Greek grammar that certain Greek constructions indicated that the, that the items being described and linked by and were identical. And he traced throughout the Greek New Testament and found that, that these certain constructions, when connected by and, were saying that these two things are equal, are the same. And this is why this is translated this way, because it is correct translation of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The grammar is saying that Jesus Christ is God, our great God, and our Savior. Wonderful. And we're looking for, we're told, the blessed hope. So notice, as we've said, I'll just review it again. Verse 11, God's grace has appeared and does three things. First of all, bringing salvation. Second, instructing us. And then third, verse 13, looking. The grace of God is not just looking back at what Jesus has done for us. It's not just presently instructing us now, but it's also looking in the future for this wonderful day that Paul calls the blessed hope. That's referring to the rapture, the coming, the appearing of the great of, of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. And then finally, we're told about Jesus, verse 14, that he is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds that he gave himself up for us. This is also what motivates us. Christ gave himself for us. He redeemed us. That word redeem is a word that, that refers to paying a ransom. That we were taken captive by sin. Jesus paid the ransom. He redeemed us. He bought us. And he redeemed us from something for something. From every lawless deed for good deeds, to be zealous for good deeds, to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then verse 15, the last verse of this chapter, Paul sums it up and says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He tells Titus to speak these things, and then even stronger, exhort these things, and if need be, reprove. So you can see it gets more intense with each command. With all authority. Your authority is based on the word of God. And then he says, let no one disregard you. The word there for disregard doesn't just mean you're sloughing something off. It literally means to think around. Let no one think around what you're saying. 
We are masters at that. I mean, we can justify any kind of compromise, can't we? Mostly it's because we're sick of waiting on God. We get so tired of waiting on God, we can justify and see any solution as God's solution, even if it's wrong. Paul says, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. You may remember some years back, um, this is more recent, so you may actually remember this, when a tornado ripped through Moore, Oklahoma. This wasn't, I mean, maybe 10 years ago or less. I don't remember exactly when it was, but not long ago. Well, a group from our church went up there to help the cleaning up. Kathy and I went with them. We were cleaning up. I mean, it looked like this neighborhood had been put through a wood chipper. It was amazing. If you've ever seen what a tornado can do, I mean, it takes bricks and crumbles bricks up because everything's going around bumping into each other, and it just, it just becomes just pieces. And in this huge whole neighborhood, everything was gone except there was one house still standing. Oh, I got to see this house. And Kathy and I walked into this house. Furniture still sitting there. Walked over to the cabinet, opened the cabinet, plates still stacked in the shelves. Walk outside and everything else is just wood chipper. And I just thought, you know, first of all, this talks about the power of nature. But also it talks about the awesome, it illustrates the awesome sovereignty of God. And the election of God. And the grace of God. And it made me think about the fact that we have... We tend to look at life as that we are, we are this destruction. But the reality is, if we come to God by his grace, we can be that house standing when everything else is destroyed. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you think that somehow you're going to earn heaven by living a life of good deeds, you can be pictured by the devastation of that whole neighborhood. But you don't have to be. You can be that house still standing that God has saved from the destruction by his grace. All you got to do is believe that Jesus died in your place on the cross and uh, accept his forgiveness, and it is yours. And what we've talked about here applies to you, just as it does to many in this class, just as it does to me. Well, before we close, we've got a couple minutes. I wonder if there's any questions about what we've talked about. If there's a if you've got a question or point of clarification you'd like to make, just raise your hand and we will come to you. Anybody? Just go ahead and leave. <laughs> okay, we've got a hand over here. Um, he had the microphone. He wasn't leaving. I'm just ribbing I'd like to know the difference between, because well, the, the Bible has both the, the difference between servant and slave. I'm trying to think. There are a couple of different Greek words that are translated servant and slave. Um, and I don't remember exactly the difference. I know a bond slave is the particular slave that is uh, uh, bonded. It's, it's You choose to put yourself. They would actually... Uh, like lean on a barn and put an awl through your ear and then an earring or something that would identify you as one who has chosen to be a servant of the master. That is a different word than your garden variety slave. So I, th I think there's only a couple of distinctions, but 
honestly, that's all I can remember. So, thanks. Great question. Anybody else? All right. You don't have to stand up, but you're going to have a camera in your face either way. All right. Great. <laughs> can you? Uh, all right. Um, being a single woman, it was very interesting when you got to the part of older women, you know, and teaching, and then talking about younger women submitting to their husbands. And you spoke of that it wasn't the husband to subject, but it was the younger woman who should willfully submit to her husband. The only thing that I would like to see added to that is choose wisely, you know, because <laughs> can we get that through to our daughters, you know, and also to our sons that they need to be the kind of man that a woman would say, I can put my life in your hands. I can do that. Yes. Because I've been divorced for 32 years, and quite frankly, I haven't found anyone worthy of submission. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Not that, I mean, all of those of you who are married in this room are obviously worthy. You know, I mean, your wives have chosen you. But in that 32-year period of time, this has not crossed my path. No, so. Well, your point is well taken. Um, I'm not and, worthy. And the point, the point that you've made is choose well. Choose well. But here's the thing. Even when you choose well, you don't see everything until you're married. So, as you know so well, as we all know so well, 1 Peter chapter 3 speaks to that specific thing. All of 1 Peter uh, is about submitting under ungodly authority. And in fact, even goes so far to say uh, in, in a context of suffering. And 1 Peter 3 says to wives to have that kind of a mindset so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they will be won over by who you are as a woman. So choose well, but even when you choose well, you're still going to have to deal with this feeling of, you know, I'm doing this unto the Lord. So, <laughs> so stay single. Yeah. Well, I mean, you still got other authority in your life that you have to submit to. Um, it's not just women. We all have authority, as we've talked about uh, with employers, with government, etc. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of opening the book of Titus, of looking at the grace of God with a magnifying glass and all its implications for us, not only bringing salvation, but instructing us to live lives that honor you and to look forward to the great hope we have of Christ coming again. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.